You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. And for the rest of us, let me invite you to, to turn to the book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts. Today marks our beginning to a series that will really take us through the, the first half of the year, through this series, through the book of, book of Acts. And so it's been a joyous Christmas season. I know we've had some wonderful brothers fill the pulpit the past two Sundays. I know Charles did such a a wonderful job uh, finishing off the Christmas series through Luke. And of course, we had Nate Aiken last week teaching us about the Lord's Supper. But it is a a joy to be back with you this morning and to dive into God's Word and to begin this this wonderful book called the Book of Acts. So let's uh, begin by reading the text that we have before us this morning. We have Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 1 through 11. So let me read this text. I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive in. So here's Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask and we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding of this text That spirit, you would open up our eyes and hearts to behold and to savor the goodness of Christ. And Lord, that we would receive the the mandate, the commission from Jesus this morning. The same commission that he gave to the apostles 2,000 years ago, Lord, now has been given to us. And Father, we pray that as Redemption Church, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be witnesses to the risen and resurrected King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So when Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh pastor from the 20th century, when he was preaching through the book of Acts, he began the sermon series with a question. And the question is, what is Christianity? What is Christianity? In fact, he said that there can be no more urgent question at the present time than this. That was in the middle of the 20th century. 
Perhaps that question is just as relevant, if not more so today. What is Christianity? And if someone approached you this week, a coworker, somebody on the street, a neighbor, and said, hey, I'm, I see that redemption church sticker on the back of your car, right? You must be a Christian. What, what is Christianity all about? What is this Christian thing? Because, of course, connected to this what is Christianity question is, is another question that's very much connected to it is what is the church? What is the, what is the mission of the church? And I think if you go out and do some man-on-the-street interviews and take a poll and take a survey of the, the average American, many people are just unfamiliar with Christianity, with the mission of the church, and they would probably give you some all, all sorts of rather unusual, strange sorts of questions and answers. Perhaps you might approach someone, they would say, well, you know, Christianity is a, a sort of philosophy. You know, it's a, a particular way of life marked by a, a moral code. It's a, a kind of stoicism that restricts and denies and abstains from the pleasures of life. You know, they might say Christianity is not so much a, a belief in the Bible, but it's, a, it's kind of a certain frame of mind. It's, a, it's an outlook to love others, to be kind, to be soft-spoken. Maybe you might approach somebody else, and maybe they would say, well, you know, this whole Christianity thing, this, that Christianity is just a, a fairy tale. It's a myth believed by knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who think ridiculous things like Noah's Ark or the virgin birth or the resurrection of the dead actually happen. They're, they're, they're bozos who believe in that type of thing. Others might say, well, Christianity is a a movement of social revolution to uproot injustice in the world, to to sprout peace upon the earth. And and so these people think that Christianity is really like a a sort of societal steroid injection that would increase the the strength and vigor of civilization. That's what a lot of the, the founding fathers thought. Or perhaps some of something they might think Christianity is this sort of political program with political aims. So not only does the world seem confused about what Christianity is, what the mission of the church is, I think Christians are just as equally confused. Just as equally. Christians have a hard time answering these questions. What's the purpose of the church? What demands does the, the Christian faith place on my life, on your life? What's the the mission that I'm supposed to be living for? And, you know, we can stumble over these questions just as much as the watching world can. And to our detriment and to the detriment of our churches, we give bad answers to them. So I'm I'm convinced that, that Christianity is the great hope of the world. I hope you believe that this morning. If, if not, I pray that I'll convince you, right, that, that Christianity is the, the hope that this world needs, this broken, fallen world. And I'm convinced that the, the schemes of philosophers, of the world's many contradictory religions, of the empty promises of politics and philosophy, that, that all of it has come up and failed. It's bankrupt. Hope in this life, in this world, is found in the gospel alone, in the Christian faith, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's something all those definitions of Christianity tend to get really wrong. Christianity is fundamentally about a person. A person. Not you, not not me. It's about the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
Christianity isn't a philosophy. It's not a moral code. It's not a way of life. It's not a pie-in-the-sky dream. It's not a political manifesto. Christianity is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And as we begin this series through the book of Acts, we're going to discover how the, the early church grew and how the gospel spread to the very ends of the earth. And, and it's in this historical count of the early days that we will discover the purpose of Christianity as the only hope for the world. And this ought to be the purpose of, of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This ought to be the, the heart behind our church's mission, but not just our church. This ought to be the heart behind the church's mission. And what is that? That we are witnesses to the king. We are witnesses to a person, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our message isn't a new moral code, but rather we are heralding an announcement of the risen king. That the Lord's anointed has conquered sin, he's vanquished death, and so our one message that we have, the one hope that we have to give the world, is one of testimony, bearing witness that we testify to the world that the king has come and the king is risen. So as we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 11, the historian Luke will tell us about these 40 days that Jesus spent with his disciples after his resurrection. He'll talk about the promises that he makes to them of the coming Holy Spirit. And ultimately, we'll see in this text that Jesus will commission his disciples for this task as he ascends into heaven. So here's the, the sermon summary. If you want to jot it down, it's pretty simple. The risen Christ summons us as his witnesses. The risen Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is resurrected, who's sitting now at the right hand of the Father, he has summoned, he has called you, any believer in Jesus Christ, he's called us to be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth. So as we walk through this text, I want to show you four ways that God has called us to, to function as we are witnesses of the risen king. I'm going to give them to you real quickly, and then, of course, we'll go through them slower uh, in just a moment. But the first, I want to show you that we testify to the king's resurrection. Second, we depend on the king's spirit. Third, we engage in the king's mission. And fourth, we hope in the king's return. So let's talk about that first one of those. We testify of the king's resurrection. We testify of the king's resurrection. As we begin the book of Acts, we have to remember one very important thing about this book. Something that the way we order the canon kind of obscures for us if we're not careful. Acts is a direct sequel to the gospel of Luke. We currently have our canonical order in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Right? which is kind of unfortunate. I understand why we did. They put all the synoptic gospels up front, and then John, which is kind of an unusual gospel, and then it goes to Acts. But, but really, the way Luke intended us to read Acts, he intended us to read it as, as kind of the sequel, the, the next part of the book of Acts. If, if Luke is book one, Acts is book two of the same series. So as we study the book of Acts, we have to read about Acts in light of what Luke has told us already in, in the gospel of Luke. So Luke talks about the coming of the king. Acts tells us about the reign of the king. Luke tells us about the, the sufferings of Christ. 
Acts tells us about the sufferings of the apostles. Luke tells us about the announcement of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is here. Acts shows us the advancement of the kingdom. So as Luke begins, he addresses this guy named Theophilus, same guy he addressed back in the Gospel of Luke. And we really don't know much about Theophilus. Anything that we can come up with is, is really more speculation or conjecture. But he was most likely a Roman Christian, perhaps wealthy, who helped fund and support Luke's research and writing of his historical account in Luke and in Acts. And so the author of Luke-Acts is Luke the physician. Now, who was Luke? Luke was a Gentile convert from Paul's ministry. And he traveled along with Paul. In fact, we'll discover that as we read the book of Acts together. Luke was a well-educated man, as evident from his complex Greek. Right? For any first-year Greek student, translating Luke or Acts is an absolute horror. Right? It's very difficult. He's a well-educated man. He's got complex structures and, and grammar and syntax, indicating that Luke was a, a well-educated man. And so Luke also was very careful in being a good historian. When you read the beginning of Luke's gospel, when you read the account, when you read Acts, Luke is giving us all sort of historical flags to help us verify what he is giving us. Luke went out and interviewed eyewitnesses. He is making sure that what he has written is a historically verified account of the life of Jesus and the life of the early church. And so as Luke begins to write Acts, he's making it pretty clear, right, in these first few verses that what he's writing about is a continuation of what he was writing about in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is picking up literally right where he left off at the end of the Gospel of Luke. And he makes clear that, that Acts that the Acts of the Apostles, this is a continuation of Jesus' ministry. So look at these opening verses here. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So one of the first things Luke highlights is the, the actions of Christ, what Jesus did, what he has done. He highlights everything that Jesus began to do in this first verse. And of course, that cause us to, to recollect, right? Go back to Luke's gospel. What sort of things did Jesus do that, that Luke recorded about all these miraculous activities? Well, he talks about how Jesus healed the leper by stretching out his hand and touching him. He talks about how Jesus healed a, a paralytic man that was brought through the, the roof of the house in Capernaum. He talks about how Jesus raised the, a widow's dead son at the gate of the town of Nain. He talks about how Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee by a word. Luke talks about how Jesus sent a legion of demons out of a tortured man into a herd of pigs. Remember that account? And he talked about how Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from her deathbed. He talks about how Jesus feeds the 5,000. You see, Luke records in painstaking detail, all of these many miraculous actions of Jesus, all of these things that he has did, all these things that he's been telling Theophilus about. Because Luke not only highlights here the, the miracles of Jesus, we have to remember why, why does Luke highlight that? Why, as we are bearing witness to Christ, why do we need to remember what Jesus did? You see, miracles were never done for the sake of miracles. Rather, the miracles authenticated the identity of the one who is performing the miracles. 
You see, all of these actions that Jesus did that Luke records for us in his Gospels, all of this provides evidence that Jesus really was who he says he is. He really is the Christ. He really is the son of the living God. Jesus really is the long-awaited Messiah. The miracles give evidence to that. And so Luke highlights the, the actions of Christ here as beginning beginning the Gospel of Acts. But secondly, he talks about the teachings of Christ. All that Jesus began to do and teach. Teach. So Luke also highlights the teaching. And of course, Luke records many of those in the Gospel of Luke. You know, Jesus wisely answered questions about fasting and the Sabbath from his critics. He gives the, the Beatitudes on the side of the mountain near the Sea of Galilee. He teaches us to, to love our enemies and to build our houses upon the rock. He teaches his disciples the, the meaning of greatness, which is to make yourself last instead of first. He gives parables in the Gospel of Luke, right? Like the parable of the, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the wicked tenants. Jesus was a masterful teacher. And Jesus' teaching overflowed with wisdom as the, as the true teacher of the law because Jesus was the author of it. And in Jesus' teaching, he shows us the way of righteousness. He shows us the demands of God's law. He shows us the great need that we have for, for grace and mercy. And in Jesus' teaching, he corrected, he rebuked, he loved, he instructed the values of his kingdom. So Jesus' actions are revealed by his divine power, but this identity, this person that we're bearing witness to, Jesus' teaching reveals God's divine wisdom. But yet as Luke recounts his gospel, he begins by talking about the actions and the teaching of Jesus. But as we look at the beginning of this, this, this book of Acts, we see that the thing that Luke really has in his view, the thing that we bear witness about more than anything else is the resurrection of Christ that proves his divinity and kingship. Look at what Luke says in the, in, the, in the book of Acts. Jesus ministered and taught until the day he was taken up in verse 2, the day he ascended into heaven. And so here's, here's something fascinating. Luke tells us that Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection in his resurrected body appearing to the apostles, presenting himself alive giving them proofs that he really was alive and, and teaching them about the kingdom of God. You know, the apostle Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time after his resurrection. There were hundreds of people in these 40 days who saw, who spoke, who heard, who touched, who ate with the resurrected Christ. And in the gospel of Luke, Luke tells us, uh, an interesting account at the end of his gospel on the road to Emmaus in which Jesus uh, appeared to two of his disciples and he took them to Moses and to all the prophets and he showed these disciples how all of the scriptures were, were culminated and fulfilled and pointed to, to him. So imagine what those 40 days must have been like after the resurrection as a follower of Jesus. As the disciples sit and listen to the resurrected Lord as Christ prepared them and taught them for for the mission that he's getting ready to send them out on. I mean, look at what all the disciples witness. I mean, just try to emotionally put yourself where they are. You know, they mourned on that Friday, didn't they? 
when Jesus was crucified, when they stripped Jesus, when they beat him, when they nailed him to the cross, these disciples had seen his sufferings. They had watched Jesus breathe his last breath. The disciples dressed Jesus' corpse, his body, and they grabbed it and they put it into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And they, they sat three long days mourning and mourning with this strange mixture of grief and confusion and fear. But yet on Sunday, they saw that the tomb was empty. It was empty. Jesus had risen. The stone was rolled away. And then Jesus began to appear to them. And then they touched Jesus' hands and his feet. Remember Doubting Thomas? Come touch, see the place where the scars were. The disciples had a fish fry with Jesus around the Sea of Galilee. They ate with him. They, they listened as Jesus taught them and instructed them about the scriptures. These disciples were witnesses to the most miraculous, the most wondrous event in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. So what are we as followers of Jesus? That if we've trusted in the Lord for our salvation, what do we do now? Well, Acts tells us we are witnesses of the resurrected Christ. Of the resurrected Christ. Like the, the apostles, we, we testify to the world that Christ is risen. That this is the ground of our hope. This is the only thing we have to offer the lost and dying world, but it is enough. That when we consider our mission as Christians, you know what? I think we can really complicate it a lot of times, can't we? You know, it's, it's fashionable to, to learn evangelistic strategies and programs. And a lot of those can be very helpful in just giving you resources in terms of how to share the gospel with, with other people in your life. But, but you know, it really isn't, isn't all that complicated. You know, we're not trying to convince people to adopt a, a philosophy or a way of life. You know, we aren't even really trying to convince them to agree with us. That's not our job. What do we do? We testify about a person. We bear witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to his historical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave. This is what we, we bear witness to because the basic appeal of every Christian who shares the gospel is just telling the world, guess what? He is not here. He has risen just as he said. That's our message. So we testify of the king's resurrection as witnesses. But to do so, Jesus tells the disciples, and he's telling us, that if we want to testify about him, we must depend on the king's spirit. We must depend on the king's spirit. You see, while, while Jesus was with them, preparing them for his departure, Jesus gave the, the disciples a very clear instruction. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem because they must wait first for the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus reminds them that, that John baptized with, with water. And Jesus says, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And, they, and then these disciples, they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit just a few days from now at Pentecost. We'll get to that in chapter 2. So the Gospel of John records 
how, how Jesus promised his disciples to give them the Holy Spirit. Listen to, to John's gospel. This is John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus tells us that his disciples, he's not going to leave them as orphans. He's going to send them a helper, a helper, the, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send in the name of, of Jesus, in the name of the King. And this Holy Spirit will teach them and bring to them remembrance, all those things that Jesus taught them that they didn't understand at the time. Holy Spirit's going to bring that to their memory, help them understand. And Jesus promise them, promises them the Holy Spirit because he knows, right? Jesus knows his disciples. He knows they're going to need that Holy Spirit if they're going to fulfill this mission, right? He spent a lot of time with them. He knows they're going to need the Holy Spirit. You see, the disciples haven't had the best track record have they to this point? For the most part, they've been bumbling disciples who have a hard time grasping Jesus' teaching. They just don't get it. They abandon Jesus in the greatest hour of his need. The, the shepherd was struck and all the sheep scattered. You know, the disciples have struggled to understand the, the purpose and the mission of the kingdom of God. But yet, as Jesus is preparing to ascend into heaven in just, just a few moments, it is to these disciples, Jesus will entrust the advancement of his kingdom. Now, I, I'm known for being a bit of a control freak and thinking to entrust my life's work and mission to these guys. But yeah, that's what Jesus does. He gives this mission to his disciples. But Jesus says, you're not going to be able to do it alone. You need the Holy Spirit. So don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem until the Father gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, John Calvin would say, in this life, we are engaged in a war. Just as army discipline requires that a soldier does not engage in battle, except that his captain's command, so it is not right for us to go out or attempt anything until the Lord has given the signal. See, in the kingdom of God, Christ is the commander-in-chief. When he says go, we go. When we says stay, we stay. So Jesus instructs. He gives them orders here. The disciples are not to engage in the spiritual conflict that awaits them as they fulfill this mission to go to the ends of the earth. They aren't even attempted without the Holy Spirit. That's how necessary the Holy Spirit is for this mission that if they attempt to advance the, the mission of the kingdom in their own strength, to bear witness to Christ in their own might, they will inevitably fail. They'll fail. They need the Holy Spirit. As we will go through the book of Acts, one of the most amazing things is the radical change that happens to these disciples. What else can explain this change? As they go from bumbling buffoons to bold broadcasters of Christ's resurrection. How, how's that explained? It can only be explained by the historical resurrection of Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit coming at the day of Pentecost. So these disciples must wait. They must wait on the Spirit of Christ who will empower them and mobilize them for ministry. Pentecost is coming, and so disciples, don't go anywhere. Stay in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's coming. 
Don't do anything without the Holy Spirit. I think that's an important witness for us, right? Important lesson for us. As we think about our mission, as we are witnesses of the risen Christ, we must rely on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as the moment of our conversion, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Our hearts are renewed as God gives us gracious affections and the Holy Spirit is now taken up resident within our hearts as believers. And so we have to remember, though, effective ministry cannot be manufactured by our own ingenuity or our diligent productivity. We cannot rely on our own strength. That as we testify to the world about Christ, you and I, we as a church, we must depend upon the Holy Spirit's power. That means that we should be quicker to pray than to plan. We must listen for the marching orders of King Jesus as his spirit will lead us and prompt us and give us words to speak. You see, the the good news here, as we look at these disciples, the good news is that we can be used for the kingdom. I mean, if God can use these guys, he can use any one of us. And God can use you for his kingdom, not because you are especially gifted or talented. Trust me, these disciples were not the cream of, of the crop, nor were they Ivy League graduates. They were a ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors who came at the summoning call of King Jesus. Come and follow me. But yet God will use these disciples, these, these group of people to turn the world upside down. And why? Because they have the Spirit of God. That's why. You see, as you go about your life each day, are you aware that the Holy Spirit dwells within you as a believer? You've been given the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do you act relying on your flesh, on your own impulses and whims, but, or are you praying? Do you pray to the Lord? Do you listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your soul When he says, speak, do you open your mouth and speak? When the Spirit says, testify, do you open your mouth and testify? When the Spirit calls you to sacrifice, do you sacrifice? When the Spirit says, obey, do you obey? You see, Christian, God has called you unto service in his kingdom to bear witness about the risen Christ. And not only that, but God has given you his Holy Spirit to empower you for this work. You are equipped with everything you need to testify about the risen Christ. You don't have to sit on your hands in Jerusalem waiting. God has already given you his Holy Spirit through his Son. The Spirit has come and dwells in the hearts of every believer. You have everything you need. So why then do you doubt that God can use you? Do you believe that you aren't smart enough? Do you aren't wise enough, you aren't articulate enough, you're not clever enough, well, guess what? You're not. You're not. But your effectiveness in testifying about the the risen Christ isn't based on you, but the Spirit who dwells within you. For as Christ's people, we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit in the new birth. So we then, as believers in the Lord, we testify about the resurrection of the King, but we do so in utter dependence upon the Spirit of God. We have the message, right? We've got the, the actions of Christ. We've known what he's done. We've got the teaching of Christ. We know what he's taught. 
We've seen the resurrection. We've seen the risen Christ. The, the Lord is here. We've got the message of the person of Christ. We have the power now of the Father's gift of the Holy Spirit. See, both word and spirit go together. And equipped with both, we then begin thirdly to engage in the king's mission. Engage in the king's mission. We need to be about this mission. So as the 40 days is coming to an end and the disciples gathered together with Jesus, the disciples began to ask Jesus a, a question. That's a pretty reasonable question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, the disciples don't have the Holy Spirit yet, so let's give them a bit of a break, right? They don't, they don't, even still, they don't fully understand what this mission and this whole kingdom thing is really about. The disciples believed that Jesus was the king. They believed that. They knew that, that this is the one promised by the prophets. This is the one who would fulfill the Davidic covenant. They, they were on that. They, were, they understood that now, that Christ is risen. And now that Christ was risen, they were expecting the kingdom of Israel to come, exceeding that of the golden age of David or Solomon. They were ready to take up arms, to lead a revolution, to overthrow Roman tyranny. But the, the mission Jesus had for these disciples is very different than the one they had in mind. You see, the, the mission that Jesus had for them is not one of the sword. Christ has not called them to be generals in a Christian army, but heralds of the Christian gospel. Before Jesus ascends to heaven, he gives his disciples, equipped with the word and soon the Holy Spirit, here he gives them their marching orders to advance his kingdom. So as the disciples ask about the time of the kingdom, when this whole kingdom thing come into fruition, the disciples expected the rule of Christ to happen right now. But as they stand before him, that's not what happens. Through the kingdom, the kingdom has come, and the king is here. The consummation of the rule of Christ will not come until the end of the age, at a time unknown. So what is the time frame that Christ has given to his church? The time is indefinite. It's indefinite. Jesus responds to the disciples, it's, it's not for you to know the times or the season by which the Father has fixed by his own authority. You see, the Lord has not made it known to us when the rule of Christ will come in its fullness at the end of the age. The book of Revelation, of course, helps us understand that, that his rule is coming. Jesus is going to win. There will be victory. There will be a kingdom, a new Jerusalem on this earth, but we do not know when that victory will fully come. God hasn't revealed that to us. So like the disciples, we have a mission until the Lord returns, a mission that continues, that persists throughout generations until Jesus comes back. We don't know the times or the season. Of course, anyone foolish enough to try to claim a date ends up being wrong, right? The time is not given to us. So thus we must persevere in this mission. Persevere in this mission that God has given us to bear witness about him. Because of course, as you know, 2,000 years have gone by now since Christ has ascended into heaven and we are still waiting on the day and the hour. And that day and hour still remains unknown. But yet we know that God keeps his word. Christ is coming, and while we wait for his return, we want to be found faithful to the task, alert, awake, working to advance his mission. 
And so we must persevere in our task of heralding the kingship of Christ until he returns. And so Jesus talks a little about the temporal dynamics of this, this mission, right? It's indefinite. But Jesus also helps the disciples see the scope of their mission. As the Holy Spirit empowers these disciples, look at what Jesus says. They will be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is to, to radiate, spread, and expand out of Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth, eventually encompassing the, the whole globe. Indeed, as we read Jesus' words here, Luke almost uses this as a, a template to structure the book of Acts, right? As the, the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to Rome by the end of the book of Acts, to the very ends of the earth. So we are, are very familiar with this text, right? We know this text, to the very ends of the earth, right? We got it. We've heard this word from Jesus before. But I do think, because we're so familiar with it, we struggle to understand the sort of shock this must have been to the disciples. This was not the commission they were expecting. Most of them were hometown folk, and they were just concerned about the kingdom of Israel anyway. They weren't much concerned about the world. But yet Jesus has them going and heralding his kingship to those who had rejected him. I mean, think about it. Where are they supposed to start? In Jerusalem. Well, witnesses in Jerusalem, it just killed Jesus in Jerusalem. And we're supposed to be witnesses there to the very people who, who orchestrated and, and executed our Lord. And then we're supposed to go to Judea. Well, they rejected Jesus there too. And then we're supposed to go bear witness in Samaria. It's where the half-breeds are. Who cares about them? And then why would we go bear witness to Jesus to them? And, and wait, we're not just supposed to go to Samaria, but we're supposed to go to the very ends of the earth? I mean, the pagans and, and the Gentiles, you mean this whole kingdom of God thing is for them too? See, I'm sure the disciples, when they first heard Jesus say this, were scratching their head a little bit. In fact, as we'll see in the book of Acts, God almost providentially has to shake them up with persecution to get them moving because they failed to understand that Jesus is not just the king of Israel. He is the king of the world. And every human being needs to hear about what the king has done. You see, Jesus' ministry and his earthly life, it was local, spreading around the region of, of Israel, largely centered around the Sea of Galilee. But yet the disciples' ministry will be global. They are to spread the good news of Jesus to every person they can, down every Roman road, taking the gospel to every city they can, proclaiming the truth that Jesus has risen from the grave. You see, the Christian gospel is for all people, and God calls us as his witnesses to take it to the very ends of the earth. And in over 2,000 years, that's exactly what the church has done and what we will continue to do until the Lord returns. After all, we live in Wilson, North Carolina. Wilson is a, a long way from Jerusalem. Trust me, I made the trip last weekend. It's long. But yet to the ends of the earth, we must go. We must go. So as the church bears witness to the actions and teachings of the resurrected Christ, as they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, as they're called to go to the ends of the earth, we have to have, like they did, a zeal, a passion for mission, for the Lord. And as we will discover in the pages of the book of Acts, these apostles are transformed. 
They are fueled with boldness and power, and that the Lord uses these disciples to take the gospel literally to the ends of the earth. And they will endure suffering, they will endure persecution, they will endure martyrdom, they will endure prison, and so much more. Why? Because they want to see Christ made known throughout the earth. You see, the mission given to the apostles is the same one we have today. God has called us to have that same passion, same priority, that same zeal that the early church had as they engaged in the mission of God to testify about Christ. So do you have that passion? Do you have this zeal burning in your soul to see the name of Christ made known to those who do not know him? Do you have a burden for this city in which we live? We live here in Wilson. You have a burden for your neighbors, for your friends. You see, our mission is to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And friends, that mission can't be compartmentalized just on Sunday morning. So how then can I, can you, how can we bear witness to Christ in our jobs, in our work, in my community, in, in my family, to my cashier, to my gym, right? Where, how, can I, how can I be about being a testifier of the resurrected Christ in each of these areas of my life? Because our fundamental identity as Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ is that we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has saved us from our sin by his death, and he has raised us up with him in resurrected life. We have repented and trusted in Jesus our King. We have submitted to his rule. So, so does your life, look carefully now, does your life testify to the resurrection, to the power of the gospel? Does the testimony of Jesus overflow from your mouth, sprung from the wellspring of grace God has placed in your heart? You see, we cannot be burdened for the nations if we aren't first burdened for our neighbors. There are many in our community right here in Wilson that need to hear about the resurrection of Christ. But yet the, the book of Acts is so helpful. It records the early history of the church. And guess what that history is? It's a history of missions. <laughs> the history of missions. So may we also in our own generation, in our own community, may we be zealous for the mission of Christ. And may the reign of Christ take root in our city, uproot our city as we, the church, testify to the risen Christ. So we engage in the kingdom's mission. And as we do, fourthly, we hope in the king's return. We hope in the king's return. Jesus takes the disciples outside of Jerusalem toward the Mount of Olives, and he actually puts them on the other side, the side not facing Jerusalem, towards the city of Bethany. And it would be here that Christ would ascend into the heavens. After Jesus had taken his disciples, he's given these apostles their mission. Jesus was then lifted up in the sky before them. And it was so miraculous. Apparently, they, they stood up and looked up there for a while, just watching Jesus through the clouds. And astonished, they looked up. I'm sure they were amazed. They were bewildered. And apparently they stood there a little too long because the Lord sent two angels to explain to them what was going on, right? With heads scratching up in the sky, the, the Lord sent these angels and he gave them a wonderful promise to these apostles. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. See, yes, Jesus has ascended to the heavens. Yes, right now, in this moment, he sits at the right hand of the Father. He rules as the resurrected living king from his heavenly throne. And he has given his apostles, he's given it to us, every follower of Jesus. We are to be messengers, testifiers of his kingship. And yes, we will do this for an indefinite period of time, as long as it takes for Christ to return. It's been going on 2,000 years. It's been going across multiple generations. Who knows when Christ will come? But the angels here give the disciples and give us a needed hope and reminder, Christ will return. He will return. Jesus will return in the same way in which we saw him go into heaven. And he will return riding on the clouds, the great rider of the right horse who will vanquish our enemies, who will rescue his people, who will resurrect the dead, who will execute the final judgment, and who will establish his kingdom forevermore. It is coming. And so the certain promise of Christ's return and victory given at the end of the age, this provides comfort to us. Comfort to our strained, exhausted voices of testimony. Yes, being about the mission of Christ is hard. It's hard. Yes, it will require sacrifice. Just read the Gospels. Read Acts. Yes, being about the mission of God demands your suffering. But those who prioritize the king's mission have the hope of the king's return. And so may the king find us faithful stewards whenever that moment comes. So what is Christianity all about? It's it's about Jesus. What's the mission of the church? We are to testify about the risen Christ until the king comes back. And as Christ gives this mission to his apostles, so does he give it to you and I this morning. We are messengers of the risen Christ to our world. This one hope that this righteous and glorious king has died for sinners and he is coming again. See, many of the early church fathers believed that Psalm 24 finds its fulfillment in the ascension of Jesus as he enters into heaven. Let me read this psalm. Lift up your heads, O gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. And as this king of glory has ascended into heaven, so will he return. The day is coming soon in which those ancient doors will open and the king of glory, the Lord of armies, will win his victory. And church, we have this certain promise. Christ will return. And so may we boldly testify to our city, to our world of the risen, righteous, and glorious king. Let's pray together.